All right. Good morning, Renew Church. How are you this morning? Very good, very good. Let's do this. Uh, we always do this, and I think it's such a help to us. Uh, we have a question up here. If we can put it up. And I'd like you to talk to each other and uh, answer this question. It's a huge question. I know it is. And it, it could take hours to talk about this. But maybe what is one element that we can talk about in your view of God? What is your view of God? Talk to the person beside you and take a few minutes to uh, answer what is your view of God. Let's do that right now. Can we do that? All right. If we could wrap it up now. We could talk forever on our view of God. I know we could because God is limitless uh, in talking about. And so I'm sure that we could even continue it after. And if you'd like to have the freedom to continue after talking about this. Well, this morning... If we could, I'd like to do something a little different. Um, The text this morning is on the parable of the net that's found in Matthew chapter 13, 47 through 50. And what I usually do, if you know, uh, I explain the text and I exposit, I do an expositional study. But today what I want to do is I want to step back and tackle this from a more big picture perspective. And the reason I want to do this is Wilson has done an excellent job teaching on the parable of the weeds, which is found in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. A couple weeks ago, he touched, uh, he actually spoke on this, and a lot of what he talked about is actually in the text that we're talking about, because Jesus teaches the same exact truth in the parable of the weeds as he does as in the parable of the net. It's just different illustrations. Uh, One is a farming illustration, and the other is a fishing illustration. And so instead of reviewing and rehashing the same ideas that Wilson so expertly taught, and he's here, so I have to say that, right? I want to take a big picture, topical approach, focusing more on the why of this theme. And the theme of these two parables is judgment. It's final judgment. So what I want to do is I want to focus on the why. Uh, Wilson talked about the what, what exactly uh, the passage is teaching. I want to focus more on the why of it. Does that make sense? I know it's kind of confusing. You'll understand as I go. So the first thing that we want to look at is the reason for judgment. The reason for judgment, okay? And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to uh, actually ask this question again. Uh, What is your view of God this morning? What do you think about him? How do you view him? What is your view of God? There's so many views of God out there. There's what I'd like to call the deistic view. And that is that God is a distant, impersonal, utterly transcendent being. He is the unmoved mover who works like a cosmic clockmaker. He made the universe, he wound up the universe, and then he lets it go without any personal involvement. And many people hold to this view. Another view is the humanistic view that God is like us. He's like a human being. You know, I was sharing the gospel on a college campus, and I remember I came across an atheist, but uh, very, very warm, very gregarious, very intelligent atheist. And we started to get into a long discussion about God. And he was trying to tell me why there wasn't a God, and of course I was sharing the gospel with him. And it just took a long time to a point where I kind of wanted to leave. Usually, you know, I want to stay and talk. But he weren't talking too long. And so I wanted to move on to the next person. And he was going on and on. And so I stopped him. I said, okay, 
let's just say for the sake of argument, there is a God. And you stand before him, what would you say? And he said, oh, that's easy. And he began to share more with me, right? About what he would say, how he couldn't have possibly believed there was a God. And I remember looking at him and saying, well, you mean to tell me that you're going to tell an omnipotent, omniscient, immutable, completely sovereign God those reasons why you didn't believe in him? And he said, oh, yeah. And you know what he's going to do? He is going to stroke his beard, and he's going to look at me, and he's going to say, wow, I never thought of that before. And we're going to go arm in arm and have a beer, right? And that's, how, that's what he said to me. And you know, I know he's being kind of funny, but that's the way a lot of people view God. Not only that, but there's also what I like to call the Oprah-istic view, okay? I made that up, by the way. Uh, named after the mama mogul of all media, Oprah Winfrey. She doesn't do TV talk anymore, but she still holds a massive media empire. And she subscribes to the view that God is out there to enrich your life. That God is out there to make you feel good about yourself. That the reason that God is out there is to raise your self-esteem. He is the ultimate chicken soup for the soul, genie in the bottle, Disney approved, ultimate warm and fuzzy feel-good God. He's like your favorite grandpa who sits you on his lap and tells you how special you are and feeds you nothing but cookies and cakes and ice cream. And he never tells you what you have to do or how you have to live. He is really there to make you feel good about yourself. And there are myriads of people who subscribe to the same view as Oprah. There's another one that we like to call the generic view. That God is whatever you want him to be. The Vegas buffet god, and I love buffets, okay? You could tell I love buffets, right? And so do you. And why do we like buffets so much? Because we can pick and choose what we like, right? We can eat whatever we want to eat. And that's the way the generic view approaches God. We can pick and choose the qualities we like about God. God is love. Oh, that's awesome. That's super. I'm going to take that. God is holy, oh, that's too restricting. I I don't care about that, right? God is faithful, oh man, I need that for my life. God is jealous, no, I don't think so, right? And we pick and choose. We determine whatever we want to believe about God. I've had so many people say things like, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are good and sincere, right? No one has cornered the market on God, so all roads eventually lead to him. You know, that's a generic view of God. Now, all of these are popular views, the deistic, the humanistic, the Oprahistic, the generic, but which one is the correct one? How many of you have seen the movie The Matrix before? Would you raise your hand? Oh, yes. Okay, okay. This generation has watched The Matrix. Maybe, you know, some of you in your youth, some of you, you know, when you're old, right, like me, but you've seen it. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's actually one of my top 10 movies. The Matrix number one, not the others. The others, I pretend like it never happened, okay? But this one, I loved. It was one of my favorite movies. Do you remember the scene where Morpheus, played by Lawrence Fishburne, meets Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, right, for the first time? I know I can do an impression of, I, I won't do it right now. But anyway, so here Morpheus meets Neo, and he says, I know that you've lived in this world, and, I, and you have known that something wasn't quite right with what you've experienced. And here Morpheus explains to Neo that the world he has experienced is a lie designed to blind him from the truth. 
And the truth was something ridiculous, like the human race was enslaved by robots, okay? But that's in the movie The Truth. Something entirely unbelievable to a person who had always seen life a certain way. And so here Morpheus gives Neo a reality check. And he says this, do you want to know the truth? And here he places before him a blue pill and a red pill. You guys are following me? You guys remember the movie? Okay. Now the blue pill, Morpheus says, if you take this, you're going to wake up and go back to believing everything's okay. But if you take the red pill, you're going to see how far this rabbit trail really goes. That's a reality check. Do you want to know the truth? This morning, I want to ask you as a church, renewed church, do you want to know the truth about God? Can you say amen? Let's take the red pill this morning. Turn to Romans chapter 1, in verse 8. Uh, Romans chapter 1. I'm going to have the first verse up here if you guys don't have a Bible. But if you do, uh, why don't you turn there? Instead of looking at the deistic, the humanistic, the operistic, or the generic view, we're going to look at the biblical all view of God. Okay, I want to make it rhyme. Romans chapter 1. Let's begin reading in verse 18. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Verse 29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent new ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed. The reason for judgment is, is the biblical view of God, that God is angry. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this truth would sink into our lives this morning, that as traumatic and as horrifying and as difficult as it may be, Lord, that we would receive and accept the truth that you are an angry God. And we pray that that truth would reverberate in our minds, that we would feel it in our emotions, that we would live it out in Uh, our will. And we pray, Lord, that in everything you would receive the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. We want to know what kind of anger is this. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at some questions that we were going to answer. What kind of anger is this? Verse 18, for the wrath of God. Now, this is a divine anger. Well, you might say, well, Dave, I thought that all anger was wrong. I thought that all anger was bad. Well, God's anger is categorically different from man's anger because it is not mixed with sin. God's anger emanates from his justness. That means that God is flawless, faultless, immaculate, and impeccable in his profound sense of right and wrong. And because God is altogether just, his anger is, number one, perfect. 
It is a consistent anger by an absolutely holy God. St. Augustine put it this way, if God perfectly loves something, then doesn't it stand to reason that he should perfectly hate that which is opposite to it? So that if God perfectly loves righteousness, then doesn't it stand to reason that he must also then perfectly hate unrighteousness? If God loves justice perfectly, then mustn't he then also perfectly hate injustice? If God loves the perfect good, then he must also hate sin with a perfect hatred. Can I get an amen? God's anger is directed against sin. And it's interesting that even we get angry with the sin around us. We turn on the TV, and don't we get angry with the crimes that are perpetrated or the slavery and the injustice that we see in the world? And rightly so. It is a right expression of the evil around us. But here's what's interesting. We get angry with sins that we see in the world, yet we find ourselves so easily excusing our own sins. C.S. Lewis says we are inconsistent because we are sinful. You see, human beings can never be truly objective about sin because we ourselves are sinners. Elie Wiesel, the great statesman and writer, wrote about a Jewish Holocaust survivor who, su- who survived the notorious Auschwitz uh, concentration camps. And when the war ended and the Allies won, he actually had a front row seat to the Nuremberg trials where these upper echelon engineers of evil were judged. And as he watched this uh, trial commence, and as he sat through that trial, he began to weep profusely, and he began to uncontrollably weep. Now, people trying, not understanding, tried to comfort him and asked him why he was weeping. And this is what he said. I expected to see demons and devils, but what I saw were faces just like mine. That's powerful. What I expected to see of these upper echelon engineers of evil were demons, devils, a different species of creature. But what I saw were faces just like mine. Humanity could do the same thing if put in that situation. You see, humans can't be objective about sin because we are all in sin. Because we share the same condition of sinfulness. Because we suffer from the same disease of sin. Only God can be perfectly objective about sin because he stands outside of sinfulness. And not only is his divine anger perfect... It's also purposeful. The word wrath in the Greek means fierce fury under control, which means that God is not like some suicide bomber who runs into a crowded marketplace and unleashes indiscriminately the bombs and the fury of those bombs. But rather, he is like a sniper who locates his target and patiently waits to trigger the, 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 the death blow. Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. He's like an archer who bends back the bow and with tension waits to unleash fury. See, I want you to picture God this morning as a God who is sitting on a throne waiting, to pati- waiting patiently to unleash his furious judgment. Now, on who? Who is he angry with, right? Verse 18, 
For the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness. God, who is perfectly just, has a right to be angry with all sin. He has a right to be angry with sin wherever he finds it. All godlessness means sin against God's character, his person. Every rebellion against his personal holiness must be accounted for. All wickedness, that means sin against God's creation. Every evil deed done against others, done against his creation, needs to be accounted for. And God, who is perfectly just, has a right to punish all sin wherever he finds it. Now, this goes against our human idea that we think that God grades on a curve, right? That God has a right to judge the big stuff. Hitler, Stalin, Paul Pot definitely need to be judged. But not me. Not me. Why? Because I'm not a mass murderer, right? Because I'm not somebody who's done all these horrific, huge atrocities. Because compared to Hitler, Stalin, and Pol Pot, Dave Jung is a really good guy, right? Right? And we play that comparison game in our lives with other human beings. We say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as Rachel Rowden over there in the back, okay? She is a sinner. That woman is a sinner, right? And Rachel can say, woo! And Rachel can say, well, I'm not as good as Dave, but I'm way better than Wilson. Oh my gosh, Wilson is the most degenerate sinner you could ever come across, right? And we could play that game, right? Over and over. See who's better than who. But what happens when we have to compare ourselves to a perfectly holy God? A perfectly just judge whose standard is perfection. A judge who not only will judge all actions, but also all thoughts and motives. You see, we think God holds up scales, and he weighs our sins, and he weighs our good works. And if our good works can outweigh our sins, then we're good with God, right? But can I share with you that God doesn't grade on a curve? That God doesn't use scales. His standard is perfect justice. Now, in that, there's an unsettling fear, isn't there? That if God is perfect and his standard is perfect justice, then every sin from the biggest atrocity to the smallest motive must be judged by a perfectly just God. And so when God is angry with sin, when he punishes sin wherever he finds it, listen, it is the right expression of his justice. Think about it. God has a right to be angry with all sin. God has a right to punish sin wherever he finds it. And God is angry with all of us because of our sin. And I want you to notice how personal this anger is. There's a word study done where 98 times the Bible says that God is kara. That means that he burns with fury because of our sin. He burns with fury, okay? 41 times the Bible says that God is karan, that he reacts ferociously to our sin. 18 times, the Bible says that God is kasaf, that he's intensely hateful because of our sin. 15 times, the Bible says that God is am. This word means foams at the mouth. Have you ever had somebody so angry with you that they foamed at the mouth? Oh, can you imagine that? But that's what the Bible says. He feels about our sins. I want you to notice this, that God is intensely, personally angry toward your sin. Let's look at the next question. Why is God so angry? Well, verse 18, 
For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. Why is God so angry? Because mankind doesn't deal with this truth that we've already talked about. Instead, he or she she suppresses the truth. Can I go back to the movie The Matrix for a second? Do you remember the scene where Cypher... No, can we we go... No, that, that one, right. Where Cypher is speaking with Agent Smith. And here Cypher has been saved out of the Matrix, okay? But now he wants to go back into the Matrix. He agrees to betray his friends. Remember that? Why? Because the truth is too traumatic. And so he asks the guardians of the Matrix to erase all memory of reality so that he can go back to his fantasy life in the Matrix, that he can become a celebrity or something in the Matrix, And remember the scene where he's eating a huge ribeye steak? You remember that scene? I love that, okay? And here, he takes a bite, and he starts masticating it. Mm. And he says, I know this isn't real. Mm. It's the matrix that's sending a message to my brain that is juicy and delicious. Do you you remember what he says at the end? He goes, you know what? Ignorance is bliss, right? Ignorance is bliss, Cypher knows the truth, but suppresses it by, number one, believing a lie, and number two, by living out that lie. How does mankind suppress the truth? Number one, by believing a lie. Verses 21 through 23, we looked at it. They invent their own God. A deistic God that doesn't care what we do. A humanistic God that looks more like us and acts more like us and is made in our image. An Oprahistic God that's a lot more user-friendly, that <clears throat> is all about sugar and spice and everything nice. A generic God that can be whatever we want him to be. Or no God that we don't have to worship or be in obedience to or to live our lives for or to be beholden to. We suppress the truth by believing a lie. And number two, by living out that lie. And in verse 28 through 31, we see a turning to our own way. We see an outright rebellion. And here you see a list of godless and wicked sins that follow from willfully living in rebellion to God. Do you see why God is so angry? The reason for judgment. Now let's look at the... I want us to look at the reality of judgment. Let's take what we've learned from Romans 1... And let's look at the parable now in Matthew 13. Verse 47, let's look at it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. Verse 48. And when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up from the shore and they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw away the bad. Now, again, this is ex- the teaching is exactly the same as what Wilson taught two weeks ago. But there's one point that I want you to see uh, out of the illustration that makes a huge, uh, uh, makes a huge uh, um, profound kind of feel in us. And that is the word net. The word net, is the, or, or uh, the word is sagin, refers to a dragnet that was used to troll the lake of Galilee. Now, this was an immense net, and it covered half a mile of water, if you can even imagine that. So at one end, of the, one end of the net was attached to the shoreline, and the other end of the net was attached to boats. And so the way it worked was as the boats would move, it would form a massive wall 
capturing everything in its path. And so the net would sweep through and gather up all the life in the sea that was covered by that net. And here Jesus says the final judgment is going to be like that. John MacArthur puts it this way, and I think this is a perfect way to say it. The kingdom of heaven is like that net that moves silently through the sea of life, drawing people almost without them knowing it to the shore of eternity. People live in this world imagining themselves to be free, moving about fulfilling whatever they desire, whatever their hearts desire, moving here and there with little knowledge that the net moves closer and closer. And by the time they awaken to what's happening, it's too late. They're already there. They are separated. You see, what Jesus is teaching is that God's kingdom will be like that dragnet that will completely and decisively bring everyone and everything to final judgment. Look in verse 49. And this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. Verse 15. And throw them into a blazing furnace where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, God's wrath will finally be unleashed in a place called hell. His anger directed at all godlessness and wickedness. His anger directed at the suppression of his knowledge and the rebellion that we have perpetrated against him will fully and finally find its ultimate fruition in a place called hell. And that's a powerful, powerful truth. Now, it may seem strange to us to hear these words coming from the mouth of Jesus because we don't associate Jesus with hell. But the fact is that Jesus spoke more about hell than any other person in the entire Bible. And the, re- the reason is to warn humanity about this reality. This parable, Jesus warns, time is running out. There is an end that will come, and it will come without expectation. It will come when people aren't ready for it. Well, there has got to be a solution then, right? I mean, that begs the question. There's got to be a solution. Well, don't the parables teach that they're good fish and bad fish? Good fish in verse 48. It teaches that they're righteous people and evil people. Righteous people in verse 49. So then the solution is to do good. It's to be good. It's to work at living and acting righteous, right? I mean, that's how I can be good with God. That's how I'll avoid being cast into this furnace. But remember, listen to me. God is perfectly holy. His standard is absolute perfection. God doesn't grade on a curve. God doesn't use scales. As a matter of fact, Romans 3 says, there is in his sight no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good as God defines it. Isaiah 64, the Old Testament says, all of us, all of humanity are unclean and our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So what hope is there for us? If even the self-righteousness that we can generate is not good enough in the final judgment, Well, there is a rescue from judgment. There is a rescue, or else this would be too traumatic, and we should just go home and kill ourselves, right? Right? There is a rescue from judgment. Hey, uh, Ben Fan, would you come on up here again? Let's give Ben a big hand. He's such an awesome guy. All right, would you just stand front and center and let everybody look at you? Everybody, everybody just look. Okay, very good. Here's my illustration, and this is how I close. 
at the final judgment, I know that I'm not good enough, right? I know that when I stand before God, my self-righteousness amounts to nothing. It's filthy rags. I know that God judges every motive. He judges every thought. He judges every action. And in that, I am lost. You know, there's nothing good in me. And so as I stand, I cannot stand before the unremitting gaze of a holy God. But listen, the Bible says in John 3, 16, for God, this angry God, right? This wrathful God, for God so loved the world. Amen? He loved humanity that he gave his one and only son. And Ben's going to play Jesus right now, okay? All right? Because he looks like Jesus. All right, all right. That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And in verse 17, maybe you've never read verse 17 before. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but he sent his son into the world to save the world. Amen? And so I am not righteous in and of myself. I need a foreign righteousness that will save me. I need a foreign righteousness, an alien righteousness to rescue me. And so what I do is I come and I hide behind the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can't see me, can you? That's why I picked you, Ben, because you're so, you're, so, you're so big and stout. Okay, listen. I stand behind the righteousness of Jesus Christ, okay? And you can't see me in that sense because I'm covered by him. Amen? Are you getting this? I'm covered by him. And so... Jesus has come into this world and lived a perfect life that no man was able to live. The first Adam failed, but Jesus, the second Adam, succeeded. He lived a perfect life, and he gave that life as a sacrifice for sins. He gave his life as a propitiation, the Bible says. And when I hide behind Jesus, God looks not at my unrighteousness. God looks at Christ's righteousness. And when I believed in him and I've committed to him and I've accepted him, God sees him and he is the propitiatory sacrifice. God's anger is appeased. Amen? God's anger is appeased because I hide under Christ Jesus. Not only that, but I transfer all of my sinfulness upon to the sacrifice of Jesus and he gives me his righteousness. And as I hide behind Christ, I am expiated, the Bible says. There is expiation. Propitiation and expiation because of Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews, the Bible says, how can we neglect or how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Amen? Let's give Ben a big hand. Oh, propitiation. Ah, I could do a whole sermon on that, but I, I won't. Propitiation means that uh, he is the sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God. Expiation means that Jesus is now the scapegoat, that my sins are transferred upon him and his righteousness is transferred upon me. That's a really good point. And when we see Jesus Christ as that sacrifice for us, even more, it should bring joy. It should bring gratefulness. That in this parable, we are the good fish, not because of the good that we've done, but because of Jesus' goodness on our behalf. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes just for a moment. You guys decided to take the red pill this morning. So I'm going to hold you to the red pill.
How many of you right now sitting here will honestly say, you know what, I'm not ready for judgment. I have never come to the place where I have taken the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. If I were to stand before God, I will not stand. I cannot stand. If that is you this morning, I pray that you would come to know Jesus Christ. I pray that you would come to see any of the pastors, any of our leaders. And we'd love to share with you the simple plan of salvation. God has made it so simple because he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And for those of you sitting here that know Jesus Christ, I want you to be grateful for the sacrifice that he's given. Not only that, but I want you to be motivated to go out and to share the good news because judgment is coming. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for everything that you are doing. And we pray that your plan would be used and motivated in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.